They found um, examples of people who've been threatened by masked gangs with pickaxe handles. And probably the most shocking one was a warehouse which had been rented and filled from the floor to the ceiling with biomedical waste. Welcome to Crawford Media with me, Hal Crawford. Well, I told you I'd have something special for you this week, and I do. Today's guest is Matthew Barraclough, the head of local news partnerships at the BBC. Matthew is super clear and compelling, and the information he lays out is relevant to anyone interested in the conundrums involved in funding public interest journalism. Now, I know that the phrase public interest journalism is actually pretty dreary. Forget about it. What we are talking about here is finding a way to discover the stories that are all around us. Vital, untold stories that immediately affect our lives. The BBC, working with local commercial news operations, has found one way of doing just that. My name is Matthew Barraclough and I'm the head of the local news partnerships at the BBC. So, Matthew, thanks so much for talking to me today. And one one thing I've noticed is that I, I came across your wonderful scheme and your job within the BBC and, and you through my work with New Zealand On Air and their establishment of the Public Interest Journalism Fund. But I think a lot of a lot of people who listen to this podcast in Australia and New Zealand may not know what you're up to, even though it's pretty world-leading stuff. So could you just give us an explanation? Yeah, sure. The Local News Partnership is a, is a sort of, it's a part of the BBC's operation, which is designed to increase the amount of public interest journalism in the UK to support the local news sector and also to drive up skills across the kind of local journalism landscape. So that, that's the really broad ambition of what we do. We started talking to the industry way back in 2015. And, um, you know, we knew the kind of challenges that commercial news providers were facing around ad revenue and around what that was doing to their newsrooms. And, you know, they were saying, you should probably lean into our space. And we started talking. We started talking about what was possible. What could the BBC do, given all the rules that surround how we spend money and how, where we get our money from? What could we do with local news partners that would uh, genuinely help them, genuinely make a difference? And, and that's kind of where this came from. How did you come to be involved in it, though? I mean, you weren't surely just sitting around it at the BBC, you know, waiting for a local news organisation to tap you on the shoulder. It came about because I was an editor. I was working as an editor in in London, in the in the main kind of BBC newsroom in West London, and I was asked to set up a conference, and it was called the Revival of Local Journalism. And we had a new director of news, the kind of big boss, and he'd come from the Times newspaper, so he he really understood the culture of print journalism, and he knew the challenges. That the, that the industry was facing. And he was really keen that the BBC kind of thought about this. And his starting point was, let's get everybody who cares about this stuff into the same room. And I was just the poor, hapless fool who had to organise that conference back in 2014. And it was a bit of a watershed moment for us because I, I, don't know how it, I don't know how it is with you, Hal, but in the UK, latterly, a lot of conferences were happening, but they tended to be grouped around people on the same platform. So you get broadcasters coming together, you'd get print journalists coming together, but but you didn't get that kind of 
we're all interested in local news moment. And, and we did, we managed to get the biggest newspapers, the biggest local newspapers, I should say, radio, TV stations, the tiniest of digital media operations. We got academics and we got kind of policymakers all together. And that was in 2014. And I organized that. It sort of then went quiet for a bit, if you like. I went back to my day job. But by the end of 2015, it became clear that actually the conference had started something. And in order to, to, to start delivering real-world change, it, they needed somebody to, to own it and do it full-time. And that's how I came into it, because I'd already met everybody and I kind of had a little bit of an established relationship to build on. And when we when you say local news, a couple of things. One one thing is you you're talking about the reporting on local governance and local authorities. Well, when we first began, we we were just talking about local news. So so you know, in all its forms. But I think what happened was as we talked to editors of local newspapers and and, and other people, we started to zone in on areas which um were less controversial for intervention. Because the thing is that what we what the BBC didn't want to do was to subsidize existing activity. That and actually at the time it would have been um in breach of regulations. So so what we had to find, I suppose, an area of um agreed deficit or failure. And the thing that we all said was our coverage of local government had been sort of declining in its in its richness and its depth for a long time. And there were a number of different reasons for that. We had all been paying less attention to those local uh, councils in the UK, which spend billions of pounds a year, which have a really big impact on people's lives. But we, we just weren't in the room to any extent compared to the past. We focused in on that. And so it was the same with skills. I mean, when we had the ambition to drive up skills, what we didn't want to do is put journalism trainers out of work. We didn't want that public money that we have to distort the market and upset the kind of uh, existing patterns of behavior. So the, the, the thing that we identified was data journalism was a common area of deficit for all of our newsrooms. We all kind of appreciated that it was going to be increasingly important, but, but most of our teams had graduated from journalism unis or training colleges in the days before data journalism was a thing. And so people just didn't have it as part of their natural skill set. And because of that kind of gap, we clearly identified that's what we're going to do. We're not going to do journalism skills in the round. We are just going to do data journalism skills. So it's that kind of, it was the conversation with the industry that allowed us to focus in on the reporting on local government and, and boosting that on data journalism skills and the production of data journalism stories. And also we said, we'll also share with you stuff that we make, namely video clips. So the BBC has regional TV bulletins all throughout the day, all across the United Kingdom. And once we've transmitted those pictures, they effectively just go into a kind of archive and, and they don't see the light of day necessarily again. And I think we were hoping that they might have a second life. And so we actually syndicate all of the clips of our news bulletins post-transmission so that our partners the other newsrooms in in the UK can use it online. So, so there's a few planks to to your partnerships program. One of the main planks is is the LDRS program, the the one or the scheme that provides money for actual employment of journalists. Then there's the SDU, the shared data unit, and and there are a few other arrangements like the syndicated video one you're talking about. Is that the broad structure of it? Yeah. So basically, there are kind of three main there are three main planks. 
we're, we're looking at other things for the future, but I mean, the, these are the kind of the big ones. In terms of scale, the local democracy reporting service is the biggest part of the activity, then the shared data unit and kind of the, we call it the news hub, which is the video syndication. That just sort of ticks along in the background and people kind of help themselves. There's always a month's worth of clips in storage and then it overwrites. So it's a case of, it's, it's a, like, we've got a few loyal users to that service. But I wouldn't say that it's you know its use is widespread. Are they allowed to put commercials against that content? No, and that and, and and because they're not, that does cramp their style to some extent. So I think that's why we have you know there are a number of users who get it and how you can use it within the rules and and, and love it. The main part of the expenditure, at any rate, is the local democracy reporting um, scheme. Could you explain how that one works? Yeah, so it's. It, so in concept, it's, it's a news agency, which is decentralized, So, um, and it only focuses on public interest news. So how it works is the BBC puts out for tender, effectively, contracts. And those contracts say, we would like a news company to report on this area, these council bodies, for a certain number of years. So we've just done this process, and the contract's three years long. So between now and, and three years' time, all of the councils in the UK should be covered. And then there's a tendering process and the local news companies step forward and they, they effectively make a case. They provide evidence that says that they should provide the service versus anyone else. The, the, the price is fixed, so nobody can uh, undercut anybody else. The value of all the contracts is pretty standard across the whole of the UK. Um, and then we evaluate those uh, bids and then make a decision. And what we end up with is now we've got 18 separate companies across the UK who hold various amounts of contracts. And the contracts add up to about 165 people's worth of funding. And within certain constraints, they then take those contracts, they employ the reporters, they manage the reporters, and we, the BBC, undertake to distribute the content that's produced. And so in practice, what's, what that means is the local democracy reporter is not working for the BBC. They're not a member of our staff. They're a member of that host newsroom staff. They go out, they, they read the documentation, agenda papers, meeting notes. They turn up to meetings, they interview local councillors. And as well as that local government, they have a slightly wider role that can pick up other democratic institutions in the locality. So the people who run the police service, for example, or the people who run our hospitals might also come in scope. And when they file their stories, they, they file them into a system that we run and administer, and that gives everybody in the partnership access to that journalism simultaneously. So nobody gets a head start, the newsroom that's actually hosting the reporter. They get it at exactly the same time that everybody else gets it. And I think this is one of the kind of key points of, of our partnership is, you know, we have, I, I said, 18 companies who supply these reporters. But we have a much bigger network of people who are the end users of this journalism. That's where the real value comes in. There's 170 companies in the UK who are part of this scheme. And between them, it's well over a thousand different news brands are included across all platforms. So, you know, you've got traditional print newspapers, you've got uh, small digital news startups, you've got radio broadcasting, you've got TV transmission as well. There, We've got everybody inside this tent, if you like. And when that local democracy reporter files a story, it's distributed to all the relevant partners and, and they see it. And that's 
And that's what's so good from our point of view, because if public money is going to be used in this way, we want as much value back for that as possible. Yeah, it's an extraordinary system and, you know, extraordinarily well thought out. There'd have to be a balance of incentives, though, wouldn't there? Because if you make it too egalitarian, then why would anyone take on that role? So what's in it for the host newsroom? Well, on a strictly kind of commercial basis, not a lot. And one of the most wonderful things about this partnership is that although the funding is coming from the BBC, the goodwill and the expertise to run these reporters is coming from the industry. And I think in the end, the incentives are quite small, but they are nonetheless significant. The incentive is that, of course, you choose the reporter. And in a newsroom that may well have been shrinking for the preceding 15 years, having a couple of people back in there is its own advantage. So I think obviously, you know, being able to run the reporters is, is a not insignificant benefit. And filling your newsroom with people again has a really, I think, positive and creative effect on the other people who are there. And I think, you know, you know, people often ask, you know, what's in it for the for the partners. And I think I think genuinely there's a shared belief that this type of reporting is really important for democracy in the UK, but it has challenges because it may not be always the kind of reporting that drives that digital audience, you know, the clicks that turn into pennies that turn into pounds. And if that's the case, then it becomes like an endangered species of reporting. And so what's happened is the local news sector has come together with the BBC and said, well, let's do something about that. And I should be, you know, we, we compete fiercely in all other areas and normal business applies. You know, we all want to be first to the story. We want to scoop each other. That's absolutely fine. We've just marked out this kind of small territory where we're going to collaborate to make a difference so that, you know, people in the UK really understand what's being done in their name. How much does it cost to run the scheme? In total, it probably costs somewhere in the region of six million pounds a year. A significant amount of money. It's it's extraordinary that the BBC would be able to sort of uh, internally manage its funding so that it could free up that sort of money for this kind of initiative. Was there anything special about the way that happened? In a sense, that probably speaks to processes that happened before I joined, you know, deciding mm -hmm. whether or not this was a good thing to spend public money on. I kind of joined to make it happen. But I think that you have to remember from our point of view, we get all of the content. So it's not like this is money out the door and then the BBC doesn't see any value back to it apart from a warm glow from time to time. It's interesting. You get the sense of the creation of, of an ecology, you know, a, a, a sort of a biosphere of reporters and how that feeds on itself. Your aim was to have no council un uncovered by a reporter. How are you going with that aim? So technically, it's true. So in other words, a reporter will have an editorial remit and we've included every council in a reporter's remit. But the reality is that some of our reporters have a real stretch to get round those councils. So, you know, in an ideal world, we would probably have fewer councils being looked after by some reporters. I mean, the reporters in London, for example, are looking at three boroughs, and that's a lot. And we've got some people working in other parts of the UK where they can only really look at one council because the geography is so remote. So it's not necessarily an even distribution of 
counsels to reporters. There's there's quite a lot of pragmatism in there. So I would say it's it's not perfect, but it's this time round in July we managed to um, increase the number of reporters. It was 150. It's now 165. So we've we've kind of upped it by 10 percent, and that's been absolutely fantastic, and allowed mm. us to get into the weeds of some councils that were you know we were only just sort of skimming over the top of. But it, it's not. It's not, we're not man marking every single council for one reporter because that would be a lot of people and a lot of funding. And I think it probably mm-hmm. wouldn't justify it. You, you mentioned that you've managed to increase the number of reporters, but another um, success is what you've done in terms of just increasing the length of the commitment. So, you know, you started, did you start with two year or three year contracts and, and you've just signed th- another three year set? So, you know, the, the thing has legs. Yeah. I mean, I think when we first did it, we the first reporter was hired in uh, January 2018. And a lot of people just said that it's not going to work. You know, we've, we've, that there, there was a lot of skepticism about whether journalists anyway could really work in collaboration at scale. And I think now after three years plus of, of operation, the sense we have is that this is not a project. This is part of normal business for the BBC and for the bit of the BBC that does, you know, local and, and regional news. And, 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 and the way we're funded, the way the BBC is funded is through a license fee. Primarily, we collect a license fee from the people in the UK. And this gives us a sort of a solidity because we, we kind of know what our income is going to be several years into the future. That is an advantage that the commercial sector does not have. It's not about the total amount of money, but it is about the kind of security of the income. And so one of the benefits of this is we can pass some of that security into the news industry. The newsrooms who now have contracts in July 2021, they know that that if they meet the requirements of the contract, they will still have that in 2024. And there's kind of no other part of their business that they could be so sure about than that. Our director general, so the boss of the BBC, has said that the local news partnership will continue and for the rest of the charter period. So we have a legal document that gives the BBC the right to exist, and it lasts for 10 or, in this instance, 11 years. So I know that this local news partnership will be operational until the 31st of December 2027. That's something, right? That's something that's uh, that's a very rare thing in uh, news media at the moment, I would say. What's the hardest bit, Matthew? What keeps you up at night? I think what keeps me up at night, I don't really have those 2 a.m. moments like I did. I suppose the hardest bit was right at the beginning and was working out. It, it was the journey that we all went on together in terms of building trust and moving from being intensely competitive, suspicious of each other, and and moving into a different space where, at the very least, we understood how the other side, the public and the private media ticked, what the constraints were, what the drivers were. I would say that 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 was certainly the hardest bit. My fear, if you like, is more for the long-term future of the sector. You know, the, the challenges that we are attempting to address, or rather our partners are, are still there. And there's some really interesting stuff happening in the UK at the moment. The big print publishers moving away from print, perhaps being more flexible around their offices, starting new websites, digital-only offering services 
for people in parts of the country that they've never been in. So there's a kind of there's in one sense there's a there's a there's a really kind of exciting expansion, but in the other sense, you know, the the economics of this haven't really changed at all. And I think that's probably you know I think it's what everyone worries about. Tell me about stopping reporters from mucking in and and you know reporters in a small local newsroom who are not allowed to go and you know interview someone because that's not in their remit. How do you stop people doing that? Are you the journalistic Grinch? Am I the Grinch? To, well, to some extent I am, and I, I'm sure that we've had frustrating conversations with our supplier newsrooms. But the reality is that this scheme is a fishbowl because everyone sees pretty much everything that's going on. So if a, a reporter's byline appears on a story that is clearly out of the remit. Everybody knows about it. I mean, and actually the local partner newsrooms will see that happen probably before I do. And so the, the, the transparency of the system tends to really help the fact that by and large, people just get on with it as described. This is a system that you could exploit, but then, you know, you can break laws too, right? And so I, I think the point here is that the entire partnership operates on a relatively high degree of trust, underpinned by some amount of kind of rigor and administration. But the trust is the most important thing. And the thing that stops reporters from mucking in and covering a, a fire or whatnot is simply they want to cover local democracy. That's why they were hired. And their newsroom wants them to do that too. And in nearly all cases, there will be somebody who can go to the birthday cake or go to the breaking story. I mean, in fairness, there have been times when there was like a huge emergent news story. And in those circumstances, you know, we would not be critical if the local democracy reporter down there helped support their colleagues on like a huge fire or an explosion in the center of the town. But those are, those are very much the exceptions. Has there been any negative feedback from councillors who, who don't want the scrutiny? Yeah, yes, absolutely. I mean, when we started doing this, when we piloted it, people were saying, you know, what are you doing? And, you know, and the reporter was saying, well, you know, I, I'm a reporter and I'm here to report on this meeting. And the councillors were saying, well, I, listen, I, I'm on my second term. This is my second term of, of um, election and I've never seen a reporter in here. And there was a real sense of, you know, what are you doing? And since that time, we've had, you know, we've had, we've had, we've had a, a mixed reaction. Broadly, there are two types of politician. There are the ones who welcome this because otherwise, when they made an impassioned speech at a public meeting, when, and, and the public wasn't there, by the way, no one heard them. No one heard the arguments they made. No one, no one, no one realised just how hard they were trying to represent the views of the people who'd elected them. It was a void, and if they lost the vote, then all that happened was, you know, there was a very, very sort of uh, flat statement that came out from the council saying, you know, the new development was rejected by ten votes to eight. So those people welcome the fact that there is a reporter who will actually write down their speech and, and will let other people know, and so that they realise this is a way that they could communicate with with the electorate. And then there are the others who, the other type of politician who effectively just resent the scrutiny. And life was much simpler before we all turned up because you could get more stuff done and nobody reported what you were saying. And we've, we've definitely had run-ins 
um, with a number of politicians. And, you know, they've complained and uh, kicked up a stink. And we've had instances where a politician has used their platform to tear a strip off one of our reporters publicly in a meeting. So, yes, it has happened. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So the shared data unit, the SDU, tell me about that. Um, so it's a it's a small team of reporters that uh, work in in Birmingham in the in the Midlands in England, and it was set up to to do two things at once: to both create data journalism that could be used by the partnership, but also to train and upskill people from from local news. And so what happened initially was that we asked our partners to nominate reporters and they would come and work with us as if they were part of the BBC team for 12 weeks at a time and they'd get a really kind of Rolls-Royce experience of of training and working in our organization living in and their graduation project at the end of the 12 weeks was a piece of journalism that could carry across the whole partnership and that the BBC itself would be entirely happy to run and these stories are uh, given out like a kind of kit of parts. So it's a data set where you can search for your areas of interest. You get it under embargo. We all use it on the same day, but that allows the local newsrooms to get local case studies and to kind of write a, an appropriate um, angle based on what the data says for their area. And then everyone effectively has their own version of the story. But we've done the heavy lifting. So we've done uh, interviews with national spokespeople. We provide images, graphs, sometimes white label media assets like video. And then, you know, all they need to do is localize it. And that, that's, that's basically the, the, the model. We, since the coronavirus, you know, pandemic, we've moved to sort of online training. So we provide courses that are either like drop-in, fairly light touch. Sometimes they're intensive. So it's a full week of sessions in the morning and sessions in the afternoon. And now we do that intense syllabus, but spread out over 10 consecutive weeks to allow pe different people to get, get access to the training. So it's, it's really exciting because the journalism that they produce is often excellent. And it's really nice to see that go out into the world, but it's also really, really inspiring when the journalists who we've trained go on to become data journalists in their own right and we see their bylines on in other people's newspapers and and websites and that we they're they're doing really good stuff and we think you know we help that happen and that's now in totally independent of us they're doing great work they themselves are sharing skills within their newsroom which is exactly what the shared data unit was was set up to do yeah, it's a wonderful uh, thing, and I know that because um, you allowed me to uh, sit in on on one or two of the sessions, uh, the training sessions that were held online, and uh, really got me enthused about learning data journalism myself. Can you give us an example of of off the cuff of one of the stories that they might have produced? There was a guy who came over to us from Northern Ireland who was working in one of the local newspapers there, and and he wanted to look at fly tipping, and I don't know, you know the illegal dumping of rubbish and he did a lot of really interesting work along with one of the one of the guys in our team and the uk has pretty good publicly available data it's a, it's a it's a pretty good environment to do data journalism in and what was happening was the number of times the maximum fine was being imposed in the uk was really growing so that i if you like the revelation when you looked at the numbers was 
Firstly, that the maximum fine imposed for dumping rubbish illegally is going up and up and up. Why is that the case? Number two, look how small the maximum fine is. It, it wasn't a large sum of money. What their story eventually demonstrated was that organized crime gangs were moving into fly tipping because the rewards were so great and the penalties were so low. They were earning so much money from getting rid of people's rubbish that they could afford to pay the maximum fine with the kind of indifference of somebody getting a minor speeding ticket. And there, there was no custodial sentence. Nobody was going to jail. And they were filling trucks with the worst kind of waste and at night going onto people's farmland and in out-of-the-way places and dumping it. And of course, data journalism is it's still journalism. You still need a story and it still needs a human face. And they found um, examples of people who've been threatened by masked gangs with pickaxe handles. And probably the most shocking one was a warehouse which had been rented and filled from the floor to the ceiling with biomedical waste. And then they just turned the key on it and disappeared. And the whole thing had been, the, 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 the lease agreement on the warehouse had been done fraudulently. And the waste in there w included some of the worst kind of waste you ever want to um, deal with, not the least of which were human body parts. Wow, a cracking story. It's a cracking story. And if you, you know, to get rid of waste is a huge business. Handling it properly, it's expensive to deal with it properly, right? Because, you know, there are laws and regulations. So it costs a lot to have certain types of waste, mm -hmm. like toxic building waste being taken away. And, you know, the, the fact was these guys, this, this, this guy from a newsroom in Northern Ireland who came over to us, lifted up the stone and really found some creepy crawlies under there. And it was absolutely fantastic. And this is a story that then, of course, the BBC jumps on. Everybody jumped on it. So you've got the SDU, the training unit, and you've got the LDR and you've got the news hub. So which, which, which is your favourite child, Matthew? I, I, can't, I can't say that. They're very different, Hal. I think in terms of they will have different impacts. The LDRS is operating at a much bigger scale than the shared data unit and the news hub. And, as a, and, and you know, people's livelihoods are directly driven by it. And the outputs are, you know, large. And the, the impact of the stories individually can be really significant. But on aggregate, you know, you're looking at a huge amount of public interest journalism being poured into the top of the, the news ecosystem. So, you know, in terms of scale, I think the LDRS is operating absolutely at a larger scale. But the SDU is doing something which, you know, the stories that the SDU produces are of extremely high caliber. And then you've got this kind of legacy that there are now, you know, I think we, I think throughout coronavirus, we managed to train 250 journalists in the 18 months when we were all locked down. And so that is 250 journalists, you know, walking around with skills, doing investigations, and, and then that has a multiplier effect. So in, in a sense, I think all parts of this partnership have impact. It's just it's of different types of impact. I, co I couldn't say which one I, I love the most. I love them both equally. Your personal journey then, Matthew, how, how long do you think you're going to be in charge? Are you, are you, are you settled in? Are you, where are you heading? I think, where am I heading? I don't know. I really, there's so, there's so much about this job that I really like and I would really struggle to find in other roles because once you've had a taste of the power of collaboration 
and partnership working, it, it might be quite difficult to go back into you know, perhaps the tram lines of so many journalistic or editorial jobs where you've got one outlet or, or you know, one audience. So, so this, this job has so much that would keep me here, but equally I do like the challenges of solving problems and creating something that wasn't there before. So who knows is the answer. I don't know. I've never had a list of things that I want to do with my career. I know it when I see it. Now, you once told me that that you wore a tie because no one else at the BBC wore a tie. What, what, what does that say about you? Are, you? are you still wearing the tie? Sure. Yeah. Have you got it on now? Yes, of course. Can't you, can't you hear it? I, I think it's just, it's just my nature. The idea that there is a corporate media uniform, and which there virtually is, just fills me with horror. And I know that actually, you know, ties are an endangered species themselves, that nobody wears them anymore. And maybe that's why I like them. Yeah, you're a contrarian. That's good pedigree. That that and the fact that you don't know where you're going, but you'll know it when you see it. I think you just passed the Juno credential test. All right, great. Thank you, Matthew. It really is a wonderful thing that you've created with other people, obviously, but you know, you're, you're one of the main guys. And I'm really admiring of the SDU and the LDR and how you've managed to pull it off with relatively low levels of controversy. You are absolutely correct to say that this is the work of dozens of people and a lot of people have put their faith in it and worked really hard to make it happen. I think the other thing is it's so important when people think about the local news partnership and what it produces that, you know, it's not just the BBC's work. It is the work of dozens of people and companies across the UK um, who invest time and even money and and faith to 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 pull it off and to keep it going. And I think that's and that's what's so gratifying about it. Because as journalists, we're so competitive naturally. It's really nice to step off that treadmill just for a period of time and to combine our efforts and to produce something that's you know fantastic. It's not that I'm at all anti. Um, competition i am not that that striving for the story is a huge source of energy for the best journalism that you will ever consume but equally sometimes it's just not the right approach and in the uk at this point and for this particular type of uh challenge we we think collaboration is the the more efficient approach matthew thank you so much for talking to me it has been a real pleasure Likewise, Hal. So that's how they do it at the BBC. I think you can probably tell from that conversation that Matthew is a good guy. And he's been very generous and open with me in particular, as I have worked to understand how public media funding works in various parts of the world. That's all from Crawford Media just now. And as always, thanks to Kevin for the tune.